welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Ostbekuldeva. Joining me today is Fiona Greenland, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia, to discuss some of her more recent work on fingerprinting and the origins of surveillance culture in the United States, and on pixel politics and satellite interpretation in the Syrian war. So welcome to the show, Fiona. Thanks, Teresa. It's great to be here. So before we discuss the two recent and very fascinating articles of yours, I was wondering whether you could introduce yourself and tell us more about your background. I have had the great pleasure of reading your book, A Ruling Culture, Art Police, Tomb Robbers and the Rise of Cultural Power in Italy, published in 2021 with the University of Chicago Press, where you look at how Italy asserts its control over cultural heritage, most notoriously through its art squad, the policing of heritage crime, through this military police uh, art protection unit, and the legal battles over its patrimony capital, as you call it. You have discussed this book at length in the New Books in Archaeology podcast, and we refer our listeners there. But maybe you could uh, use this work as a way to introduce yourself and your interests and reflect on how these have evolved over time. And of particular interest to our listeners are questions about cultures of policing and the policing of culture, as well as the evolving role of technology in both. And I think your very creative work across these topics can offer a new perspective across these subjects. So please tell us more about yourself. Thanks for the generous introduction. I am a sociology faculty member, as you note. But for many years prior to coming to sociology, I was a classical archaeologist. So I did my training um, and field work in Europe, and I studied the uh, take up of Roman cultural practices and material artifacts in the Western Empire. I became very interested in contemporary uses of ancient artifacts. And as I write in my book, Ruling Culture, The tipping point for me research-wise was a day at an excavation site in Italy when our site was hit by thieves. So we know that looters came at some point in the night, took objects from the site, broke into um, one of the storage facilities. And as I watched that event unfold, I was intrigued by the response of Italian law enforcement and the way that they worked with our head archaeologists and his assistant to um, get to the bottom of what had happened. And a comment that stuck with me was the observation by one of the law enforcement officers that it was probably a, a, an inside job. Um, in fact, that was like a point repeated by the head archaeologists. And I really thought, what does it mean to have an inside job? We were at this remote archaeological site. There weren't any houses or apartments nearby. We walked down a dirt road to get there. Who is the insider here? And why is that germane to the story? This was an area of crime that I didn't know very much about. I had always been at the archaeological site as an archaeologist, but I was just in the early stages of, of training in sociology when I was thinking this could be an important sociological analysis. And then, as you say in your introductory remarks, um, this was built into a broader analysis of cultures of policing and the ways in which a government like Italy's tries to have control over the circulation of its objects and artifacts. So these two areas of training became very important in how I framed the entire study. Interesting, really interesting. Uh, maybe you could tell us, I mean, I'm just curious more about this uh, art squad. And I mean, it's kind of like on the global map, it's like Italy and maybe New York and a couple of other, uh, these kind of units that are dedicated to art crime and so forth. So how does it fit in the in the kind of imaginary of Italy and like, yeah, why is it so important and so central, basically? Absolutely fascinating chapter in this whole story, right? This art squad. So we refer to them in English as the art squad. They're actually the um, TPC or Tutela del Patrimonio Culturale. This is an elite military police unit that protects culturally sensitive sites and objects, both in Italy, but they also have an international brief. So this law enforcement unit is also trained to observe the movement of objects on the market outside of Italy. And they do that in a few different ways. 
But this unit was founded in 1969, and it was the world's first such unit, like dedicated to cultural uh, crimes and protection. It started out with just a couple of officers in a tiny office and then expanded um, to have hundreds of officers throughout the country now. And crucially, this style of cultural policing has been exported. So there are other countries that have taken up this model um, or adapted it for their own local and national needs. And the Italian government has been quite uh, vocal in promoting it as a form of governance. So what that means is that these officers actually have very specialist knowledge in archaeology, art history, conservation, uh, even manuscripts, um, because those two would fall under, right, like protected objects. And they are required to do uh, master's training at a university in Rome. They're also required to have law enforcement experience. It's a very rigorous process. Uh, it's a very competitive process. Not everybody gets to be an art squad agent. But the result is an elite crime fighting unit that is very effective in what it does. Um, and a couple of sting operations just in the last three to four years shows two things. One, that they are uh, very astute and, and very active in collaborating with other law enforcement units. That's been a big shift lately. But other that there's still a market. Uh, so this market has not gone away. And it, yeah, and maybe just one last question about this squad, because I find it so fascinating. Regarding the use of data, is there some kind of, uh, you know, expansion of, let's say, data-driven policing or a use of open source intelligence? How do they relate to this kind of, uh, the use of the internet to, to kind of sell these types of goods also? And is there something that you know about this or is it outside of? <laughs> yeah, so... Even before the advent of things like machine learning or natural language processing to do big data um, analysis, uh, they had a, a digital da art databank, the um, Leonardo databank of stolen artworks. And it started as a, a database of um, stolen domestic artworks, but then it's since expanded and it has been um, taken up by Interpol and international law enforcement. So yeah, the, the data though that the Art Squad use extends beyond that now. They are doing um, algorithmic detection of looted or suspected stolen objects online to open online marketplace environments, um, to auction houses online, but also to bricks and mortar shops. So there is observational activity to try to monitor the movement of cultural goods. Um, and I should note too, that they are uh, also monitoring more broad categories of cultural goods. So Italian, but also the bigger picture, um, because it's often the case that these Flows of, of stolen cultural goods are heterogeneous flows. So they are definitely like observing um, the, the big picture. Hmm. Fascinating. So uh, it's fair to say that the issue that runs through your research is the policing of crimes against cultural heritage, past and present, be it in peacetime, such as in the context of Italy that you just mentioned, or in the context of war, such as in Syria, as well as issues of cultural diplomacy. So the world of antiquities and cultural heritage and of the markets in these high value or unique heritage objects is upon a closer look actually fraught with a range of conflicts and crime scenarios. I think it's more Indiana Jones than uh, people think <laughs> in reality as well. But before we move to discuss your article on this pixel politics and satellite interpretation in the Syrian war, I think that it might be useful if you could sketch kind of the bigger picture around this market and the looting of antiquities and terrorism financing and crime fighting in the context of the Syrian war and touch upon the various actors involved, like what is the field actually that we're going to be talking about when we will talk about the pixel later? <laughs> yeah, so that pixel article takes a bird's eye view, um, in fact, a satellite's eye view of monitoring site looting on the ground. But be, but what is actually on the ground, right? That's your question. Uh, Different kinds of looters have different motivations, and that is something that there's been a lot of scholarly activity around. Uh, some scholars argue that we're talking, we have to be generous towards the idea that there are subsistence looters who are digging for 
artifacts out of desperation uh, to try to sell to the first buyer they, they can find um, as a supplementary income. Um, others have pointed to the exogenous shocks of things like war or um, government upheaval um, as maybe opening up an opportunity space to use some criminological language and that we might then have people who are looters of convenience wouldn't otherwise do it but there's the object there's the site it's unguarded so they sort of like go for it and my collaborator michelle fabiani at the university of new haven um, did an entire multi-year study of this in egypt and um, looked at the consequences of exogenous socio-political shocks on looting uh, I really love the work of such specialists as Neil Brody, Morag Kersel, Donna Yates, Simon McKenzie. They have studied these different kinds of uh, networks and network structures. We can think here too of the work of Tess Davis and Peter Campbell, all of whom have said we have some a basic template to understand looters moving objects from a site to middlemen and then to different market actors. And, and that's like the, the most basic way we can like structure it because then there are a lot of qualitative details that come in based on the local environment and crucially on the legal context, right? So that movement is very um, crucial. And that brings me back to one of the questions that you touched on earlier. Why does this market persist? What are we actually looking at in terms of a, a criminal space and who is still looting and profiting from the movement of illicit market of illicit objects? And here's where, where I think that the work of Simon McKenzie and Donnie Yates takes on additional value in characterizing this as a gray market. So what a gray market means is that we um, have neither clear black and white dichotomy between illegal and legal, but in fact, a lot a highly interpretive space in which objects may have some documentation, but it's a loose providence, right? Um, and it's maybe not enough to um, press charges, but it is like enough to pass muster and get it into another place in the market network. Because it's a gray market, uh, many objects are allowed to like move through the sieve, as it were. There are still a lot of holes, a, lo a lot of gaps in policy coverage, much variation from country to country, despite international conventions like UNESCO 1970 and 1972. We know that there are still many um, weak points in the entire policy network. What that means is that there are different kinds of vendors involved different buyers who may or may not know that an object has insufficient provenance to be legally sold. In a current project that I'm undertaking with Michelle Fabiani, we're studying eBay. We're looking at cultural goods listed on eBay. And I can't tell you for sure whether things are legally or illegally posted. That's not really the point of the study. It is to understand movements of objects in this gray market space and to look at the heterogeneous uh, flows of objects through different vendors. So I think we could just put a point on it by saying this market continues and it continues because it is allowed to thrive in a space of many gaps, policy gaps, um, gaps in coverage, gaps in law enforcement. Also, frankly, we still have very, um, I think a long way to go in terms of convincing political officials that it's worth continued investment in. Um, they might not see it as important enough to uh, police or to invest resources in unless they connect it with something directly like terrorism. So during the Syrian war, there was a surge of interest in archeological sites and the welfare of artifacts because of suspicions that the Islamic State uh, was profiting directly from looted artifacts. You know, when something like that goes away, the issue fades. The important thing is that we not let it fade, but continue to work on it so that we can stave off the next large-scale exploitation. Indeed. And and so in the context of the Syrian war, uh, what was the project that you followed for for this article? And what is the role, you know, in, in archaeology of archaeologists in in this kind of counter-terror efforts and in analyzing kind of this satellite images and so forth. I find this fascinating. <laughs> so because of dangers on the ground during the Syrian war, scholars monitored archaeological site activity 
through satellites. Remote sensing technologies allowed some um, visual purchase on the activities on the ground. And it was amazing because we had high resolution satellites passing overhead, giving us information in real time as, as to what was going on. And that became a, a jumping off point into the next project for me because I wondered how useful these satellite images were to understanding human motives, to understanding human social relationships. Again, the sociologist in me wanted to know much more information about the who. Um, you know, what kinds of people are we actually talking about? There was a lot written in the media about who uh, the looters were and what motivated them. And there were different theories and some of them were backed up by some evidence and some of them really weren't, but they were um, maybe projected in from other known cases of looting during wartime. Bottom line, we had a few different narratives. So there were narratives of ISIS forcing local people to loot. There were narratives of ISIS paying people to loot or giving them like a, a cut of whatever profit was to be made from looted artifacts. Um, and then also a kind of like narrative that it was like the Syrian army. And we know that looting happened in sites occupied by the Syrian army in the time that they were there. It, the result is like a very mixed picture. Um, no single narrative seems to capture all of the activity or like explain everything that we saw. But to come back to the satellites, they can tell us um, at a remove about the movement of people machinery, like tanks coming in or trucks coming and going at certain days of the week. Uh, looters pits became a very um, important way of trying to count or trying to measure looting activity. So like literally counting holes that appeared uh, over a period of time, like whatever period of time that the satellite uh, captured it. <laughs> but Looted holes don't tell us what actually comes out of the ground. It just tells us that somebody dug there, like made a hole. We can't tell the depth and we can't tell, of course, what came out of it, if anything did. And I wanted to understand what analysts were actually doing about that. So how are you making an argument about crime or trying to measure the scope of criminal activity with a visual device that is... Um, notoriously prone to a wide range of narratives or interpretations being grafted onto it. And as a cultural sociologist, I pay a lot of attention to narratives because it is how people make meaning of the world through these kinds of stories, sometimes paired with um, empirical evidence, but often a kind of theoretical exercise in projecting what we think we know onto local actors. Indeed, and this is where the pixel comes in as, as, a, as a thing to, to take note of. And uh, yeah, right. And, and I think I've, I, I have never read before an article on the pixel, so I thought it was real fun. Uh, probably there are some, but uh, that I <laughs> didn't, uh, didn't uh, think of before. But uh, yeah, and, but when it comes to this pixel and the interpretation of the satellite images, you have a whole range of actors involved. You have the programmers, uh, technicians, archaeologists, anthropologists, and the policymakers. I think the last is the most interesting in how it translates the, the kind of scientific or technical expertise into kind of policy uh, language. And uh, and so so maybe you can you can tell us more about how this kind of expertise becomes translated at every step. Uh, I think that it, this would be really helpful to to see the transformation of the <laughs> of the image <laughs> through the different gazes of different experts. Yeah. So the pixel is the smallest controllable unit in a digital image. I think for many of us, a pixel is um, a tiny box. Uh, and actually, like the pixel has now come to stand in for an earlier, more primitive style of digital graphic design, right? Like block of little images, like in Minecraft, for example. Um, technically, and here I, I'm guided by the work of L.V. Ray Smith, who is a pioneering computer scientist and who actually wrote an entire book um, about the pixel, published it in 2021 with MIT Press, a biography of the pixel. <laughs> and what Smith reminds us there is that a pixel is a point sample. So it's actually not visible to the human eye. It's expressed in binary scale, and it is the outcome of sampling algorithms that um, then generate 
a, an image that is visible to the human eye, right? Like that's the digital image. And if it's doing its job, I mean, we don't see it. It fades into the background. Well, I became interested in the pixel because in the course of doing interviews with the analysts of Syrian wartime looting, it became obvious that people were doing such a minute level of scrutiny of these images that they were isolating a single pixel or two pixels and making their assessments of terrorist threat on that basis. I had never seen anything like this before. I'd always understood digital images as a single composition and one that you could certainly zoom into on your screen to try to bring some detail into relief to the limit of resolution supported in that particular image. But the notion that a single pixel or maybe two pixels could be the bearer of truth in making a crucial distinction about a terrorist or a civilian, for example, was fascinating to me and I needed to know more about that. In the course of doing interviews then with satellite analysts, with policymakers, and with the detectors, that's my term for the folks who are actually programming the computers and the satellites, it became clear that uh, there was a discrepant opinion about the usefulness of doing this. And the phrase, the two pixel rule of thumb came into use by one of these technicians who said, um, it wouldn't bear up to use a single pixel, but the rule of thumb is to have two. <laughs> and then you have a kind of mini composition within a composition that can sustain the interpretation. Mind you, Teresa, we're talking about a massively consequential line of work, not just can I use two pixels to try to identify I don't know, the writing on the side of an ice cream truck. We're talking about trying to identify faces, license plates, ways to survey behavior and tie it back to identifiable um, profiles in, say, law enforcement records or, um, you know, Department of State records. And it was important to me that I understand whether this was right, whether this was technically accurate. I mean, it looked good on a screen and it sounds good out loud, but how does that actually work? So in this project, and I write about this in Media, Culture and Society earlier this year, I study the ways in which the pixel would be lifted from a digital image, made to be its own pictorial composition, and then travel from screen to screen as different analysts were making different interpretations of it. And perhaps a parallel to contemporary art would be plantalism, where you try to take a single point from the painted composition as a whole and interpret it. And it would be nonsensical, right? You'd have a single point out of something that is actually um, a, a very complicated scene of many different layers of color but try to achieve some kind of ocular clarity, which then becomes a social clarity. So the pixel for me was all about tracing the movement, starting with the most um, basic collection of raw data and the sampling algorithms out to final like policy reports and trying to make assertions about how much looting was happening on the ground. And uh, it just took me into this fascinating world of monitors, satellites, screens, and really new, bold forms of surveillance on the basis of this very, very tiny unit in the digital image. Indeed, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, I was particularly struck by the policy and counterterrorism interests that you describe here, and uh, and precisely these inferences and, uh, and assessments of the different uh, looting holes, right, at the... You know that one point, uh, and I quote from the article, that the question of machinery was pivotal to policymakers' concern that ISIS might have been involved. The interpretation hinges on a single spot on the screen. So what was the idea here with the, with the machinery and the, the ISIS and, and what kind of, yeah, what kind of hole is a more important hole than another hole? <laughs> right. Well, I guess the worst kind of hole if you're doing counterterrorism research is the hole that is dug by uh, the enemy uh, and that you can trace it right back to that, but also a hole that is associated with an area known for its archaeological artifacts. You know, this brings in another set of questions about um, our sources of information about what's under the ground at any given point. The study of art crime is already difficult because uh, 
thieves cover the tracks. They use all kinds of methods to throw off investigators and to doctor paperwork. Just imagine now covering all of that with a couple of meters of topsoil. So now we don't even know what is being brought out right from any given hole. Yeah, the machinery is twofold. It's what is on the ground um, that we are seeing through the satellite, uh, what kind of heavy machinery might be brought to move soil and then to move out objects and to move people to the site. But then also it's the machinery that we are relying on to generate these facts or these data points. So, um, you know, there are humans at work behind the monitors, setting up the machines, but then they sort of like take off and have a momentum of their own, these machines in setting up our understanding of what, of what could have happened. Right. Um, there's also this uh, this one kind of policy making uh, uh, context that in the in the article that I was really wondering about. There was uh, you write that after the Baghdad Museum was looted in 2002, one prominent American archaeologist suggested that artifacts artifact looters should be shot on sight. This line of argument was resurrected during the Syrian war. A high-profile task force report made up of an international group of scholars and lobbyists recommended that the U.S. Department of Defense carry out strikes to protect cultural heritage sites when there was credible evidence of planned damage or exploitation. Others suggested that sites should be preemptively bombed rather than allowed to stand as possible revenue resource for terrorist organizations. And I was wondering whether you could say something more about these kind of discussions uh, and the various positions, especially the, the, the idea around preemptive strikes, uh, that really strikes me as uh, <laughs> very strange. <laughs> and, and so I would just like to know where it comes from and what, what sorts of kind of policy discourses float around this heritage crime and conflict uh, nexus, basically. Right, a preemptive strike would ironically destroy the very materials that we are seeking to protect. I think that the scholars who have advocated for these kinds of measures see it as the very last choice to be made um, when all other options have been exhausted. If we are certain that the continued availability of artifacts from a site would be a sustained source of income or resource for a group whose act actions are so violent, so reprehensible um, that we're going to take like an all an all fronts approach to to destroying them and their sources of support. I haven't heard support for those maneuvers in recent years, and I think that is attributed to the fact that ISIS itself has faded in significance um, and ceased to be a global threat. Um, or at least we could say like a global threat in the way that they were in 2016. And my understanding too, because I know some of the scholars who have made these um, assertions, particularly, you know, shooting looters on site, is that... Um, they associate these looters not with the category of subsistence digger that I discussed earlier, those who are so desperate to support themselves and their families that they would um, try to sell objects for some income, but they associate them more with active support for terrorist organizations, organizations that do destroy homes and, and civilian lives indiscriminately. And I also think that those um, arguments came in that moment of extreme fear. I mean, think back to 2015, 2016, when the Islamic State's takeover of large land masses in Syria and Iraq seemed unstoppable, but then also activities or terrorist activities outside the region um, struck fear in all of us. There seemed to be no end, right? So that was also the moment when these um, when these arguments were coming up. My own thinking about this is that preemptive strikes don't make sense. It's like the opposite of what we should be doing. Um, the key is better peacetime protection, monitoring, um, and then rebuilding civilian infrastructures. And I mean the non-cultural civilian infrastructures, schools, hospitals, um, systems of employment, making sure everybody has adequate nutrition so that the archaeological site 
doesn't become um, vulnerable once again to, to, to looting. Indeed. Yeah, that makes sense. Structural changes, this was what's needed, yes. So let us now turn uh, from this kind of uh, very dark topic to, to your other article and to history. <laughs> and uh, that would be the article published in the American Journal of Cultural Sociology and titled Fingerprinting, Civil Codes and the Origins of Surveillance Culture in the United States where you turn to the popularization and dissemination of mass surveillance techniques in the early 20th century. And I really enjoyed this piece, as it reminded me of the work of Robert Weiss on the Pinkertons and private corporate policing of labor and corporate security at Ford and more. Uh, or else that is research that points to the historical continuities of surveillance practices. And I think this is really important to bring forward. This is not something that started in the 90s or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so, uh, so um, yeah, and it also aligns with my own research on the compliance industrial complex, where we can observe very similar practices today, only, let's say, with more advanced tools and worded slightly differently. And where we can also see the immense role of private actors and surveillance entrepreneurs of privatized and privately certified expertise. Um, and these continuities make it even more interesting, I think, to dig into the history of the fingerprint men, which you do. So uh, who were the fingerprint men and how did you come to research them? <laughs> You've hit all of the key points already, Teresa. I became fascinated with these fingerprint men when I started researching this uh, story, this Jennings murder mystery on the south side of Chicago in 1910. Fingerprint men were surveillance entrepreneurs. They were trained amateurs, some of them self-taught, some of them did certification programs through private schools like the University for the Applied Sciences in Chicago, some of it in person, some of it mail order. This was part of the wave of popular interest in scientific mysteries or whodunits, you know, crime fiction. 1920s, 1930s, a significant social moment of social history in the United States. As cities were growing, metropolitan populations were becoming more diverse. And you can see the hysteria played out in newspaper stories. Who are these strangers coming into the city? And one of the specific narratives that's woven into these stories and that becomes amplified is the suspicion that there are uh, criminals in our midst, right? Itinerant criminals who go undetected from city to city maybe changing their names or lightly edited biographies. They show up, they're moving from Kansas City to St. Louis to Chicago to Milwaukee, et cetera, and along the way committing new crimes. And what's backing that or what's kind of behind that narrative is the um, specific suspicion of foreigners, outsiders, and people of color. And that's like how these narratives get um, anchored into everyday practices. Fingerprint men grow up out of this. And you're so right to point to uh, Pinkerton. Like, yep, there is something of the detective agency already in the background here for uh, Americans thinking um, there are through detection, through specific, highly individualized surveillance, it can be possible really truly to know somebody, really truly to know what their motives are, what their shady actions are, everything they're, try they're trying to conceal about themselves. We can root that out with the proper methods of observation. Fingerprint men build on all of that through this specific surveillance device of the fingerprint. And we know, right, that there have been other ways of monitoring criminal activity or making predictions like predictive surveillance of who's going to commit a crime through anthropometry. And anthropometry swept law enforcement in Europe and then in the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century with its promise of very precise measurements to size up a criminal or somebody's potential criminality. So fingerprint men like came up, out, out of that, but they were working in an adjacent tradition. One of the um, advantages for fingerprints analysis is that 
you have this um, allure of exactitude in all of the whorls and all of the swirls on our fingers. Um, but I argue in this paper that it be, precisely because it's not as numerically exact as anthropometry, it leaves more space for narratives. So these fingerprint men who were, you know, patriots, loyal to the United States, but not exactly working in law enforcement, had this rugged individualism that American society loves, a rugged individualism working adjacent to law enforcement that gave them a kind of, um, we can say like freelance space, like to do their own thing, have their own methods, the hard boiled detective, right? Working late, pursuing his hunches or his um, unqualified sources. And then going out into the field and doing their own data collection, their own surveillance, their own like lookouts. And that's who these fingerprint men were. Indeed. And I, I, found, I found it really fascinating how they were selling also these, uh, this expertise, right? There's this one uh, commercial that you have a nice picture of in the and the thing and and it also says like many experts regularly earn from three thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars a year in this fascinating game. And I was talking about you know how you call it a game. <laughs> I mean there's like criminals in lives involved, right? The justice and so forth doesn't matter. And now you can easily earn the secrets, uh, learn the secrets of this new science in your spare time at home. And any man with common school education and average ability can become a fingerprint expert in a surprisingly short time. I found it kind of fascinating how they market it to the to the average man, right? Where you get this kind of uh, the, the civil argument that you that you kind of propose there. So uh, you, you muted money, markets, cool devices that they could pay for and order a dactyloscope. You know, these kinds of like detective kits were quite popular at the time. I'm talking 1920s and 30s. The advertisement that you referred to came from Popular Mechanics. And they uh, one of their advertising shticks was to have these highly dramatized stories of capers or whodunits. You've got like three men wearing trench coats and one of them's got a, a looking glass and they're all staring hard at some piece of evidence at the crime scene. The allure there for the fingerprint man is that he could be the one to unlock the mystery, that he could be the one who has the brilliant insight, is able to like decipher this fingerprint in a way that nobody else can. And always very subtly that he is at the end of the day, the smartest man in the room. Mm. He's even able to outwit the cops, right? Or the law enforcement uh, head of, of uh, investigation. And I think that's important because these fingerprint men, you know, were they ever actually in, in desire of a formal law enforcement job? You know, that would require like more individual analysis. But what I found in the records was that these fingerprint men didn't necessarily trust law enforcement to do the to do the right thing, to do the good job, that they themselves wanted to be in on the action because they could be the true crime busters. We still have a tradition of that in American society, and that manifests itself in a mistrust of the big state. So what's interesting here, this bigger argument that I'm making is that this adjacent form of surveillance, which we now have, like citizens making citizen arrests or private companies doing the surveillance for the state, is very much with us. And, and I wanted to point to something that you said earlier in your introductory remarks. Um, it doesn't start with 9-11. It doesn't start with the Bush doctrine. This specific partnership, I mean, between state surveillance and private surveillance. And today, the manifestation of private surveillance, of course, is social media. It's like what is happening with our user profiles on the different social media platforms that we sign on to, um, things that we might not necessarily be aware of when we sign that user agreement. I wanted to make the case here that what the fingerprint man model offers us is a much earlier example of a private sector surveillance method that was monetized and marketed widely and then taken up by other private firms or agencies like banks and lending associations, but also by state 
and federal law enforcement. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I found it really fun with the, with the fingerprint is on the one hand the suspect that is ta being taken the fingerprint of, but also the, the good citizen just delivers the fingerprint to the bank, right? And I think that this kind of struck me as the origin of the KYC, of the identification of know your customer due diligence processes and so forth, right? So you see that, that you know, that uh, if, you, if you're good, you have nothing to hide, then, then you should submit yourself to these processes. So there was this... Uh, this thing that you write nicely about this uh, this doctrine of uh, nothing to hide and how it goes uh, with this kind of logic. So maybe you want to say something about the the, if the trope that is still, hide, still here. <laughs> right. If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. That is exactly what the uh, police commissioner was saying to the Chicago public in the early 20th century when they made the decision to adopt fingerprinting. The, the take up of fingerprinting has itself an interesting history and it's been well studied and documented by other scholars. Um, I can refer your listeners to Simon Cole's really influential and important book on fingerprinting. Well, the law enforcement agencies in the US wanted to firstly fingerprint criminals, like those who were being, being brought in and being booked for crimes. And then they realized that they needed a much wider database of fingerprints in order for it to be useful, in order to do like crime scene investigation. Um, how do you match the print to a person? So then they start expanding it outward in different layers. And when it finally came to a kind of all civilian uh, approach to fingerprinting, they had to work with the fact that there was a stigma attached to fingerprinting. It was firmly associated with criminal activity and good citizens didn't want to be fingerprinted because it would have stigmatized them too. So in order to assuage uh, the worried public, they had to like shift the frame around it. And there were uh, public stunts like the president of the United States being fingerprinted, like with his consent, just to remind everybody that it was a safe and in fact, loyal and patriotic thing to do. And so this phrase that you brought in becomes very important. Those who have nothing to hide have nothing to fear. If you've got a good, clean record, in other words, you can give us your fingerprints and know that nothing will happen. You don't need to be worried. Very similar to when law enforcement today says, you know, at a routine traffic stop, can I take a look inside your trunk? Or can I take a look inside your bag? If you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to fear. I wanted to say too about this, that um, scholars of surveillance here will know that criminal profiling grows out of expanded databases. So what we see is that once people are in the system and the system that we're talking about ceases to be limited to any single municipal uh, police department and grows into a national surveillance apparatus through what is later the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the FBI. The FBI amalgamates these big city police department fingerprint databases turns it into a national basis for surveillance, and then can begin um, criminal profiling. So scholars like Sarah Brain, who have studied um, you know, a big city, big data policing, then show us the ways in which different sources of information or different data points from different surveillance um, techniques are brought together and combined algorithmically to generate uh, probability profiles. Who is likely to be hanging out with a gang, for example? And I wanted to show that in this rudimentary way, a hundred years ago, this style of thought, nothing to hide, if you've, you know, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear, um, becomes a pretext for these activities. Indeed, and also they construct this category of the suspect in the process, right? You have the, <laughs> which kind of uh, legitimizes the building <laughs> of uh, more databases and so forth. But maybe you know, you that's a really important point too. I'm so glad that you said that because in the archival work that I did, I found that the use of the word suspect was the coin of the realm. So when the Chicago Police Department every year is writing up its annual report to the mayor's office, 
it is pointing to how successful it is because, you know, like any publicly funded agency, it has to show its worth. It has to show how effective it is uh, at reducing crime or arresting people, making it a safer city. And there's a very precise moment when they switched the language. Um, so now the folks coming in for fingerprinting become suspects. They're not individuals. They're not men and women. Everybody is um, falls under this category of suspect. And suspect, oh my gosh, it means so many different things. It's not uh, technically who is indicted or who is convicted. It's just somebody who's been profiled as a potential lawbreaker. You know, you, you and I know that can mean so many different things. This becomes a very subtle apparatus or um, interpretive device for um, any number of um, police acts on that basis. So suspect, suspect is a very semantically loaded term, but it comes baked into these official documents. So every year they are reporting back their statistics to show how effective they are. And it becomes how many suspects did we fingerprint this year? So this is what they trade in then to show that the surveillance office of the Chicago Police Department is doing its job. Indeed, performance management always perverts <laughs> everything. <laughs> but yeah, but you see this logic of suspicion today very clearly in like the suspicious activity reporting of banks, for instance, right, to the economic crime units and so forth. It's based on the exactly same logic, right? You have you you have kind of an expert in the bank trained, often very very often certified by private companies that deliver training that call themselves crime fighters and you know they have all kinds of uh, all kinds of kind of similar rhetorics actually as 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 these kind of uh, fingerprint men had in their advertising you find that all around in the in the kind of compliance financial crime sector and and those certified people then then uh, then use you know whatever their kind of skills to to compile a suspicion that is then sold to the police right to the, to the real police but but they deliver the intelligence so you have the suspicion goes with the intelligence logic and this is why i like this so much because it really traces back the history of the intelligence logic in the police right and and and, and how it kind of stimulates this uh, this this massive data collection right and it, and that it has always been kind of intertwined because we often imagine i think a little bit of a break in policing where you see this kind of shift to this intelligence logic in the recent years knowledge-based policing and so forth but here you can trace it really well that the intelligence logic has actually been baked in no less through the role of the private actress i would say uh, from the very beginning so i think this is really really interesting and this brings us to this uh, fun uh, surveillance entrepreneur that you <laughs> that you write about this uh, Matthew McCloggery or something like that, um, which, uh, which I find really interesting. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, he was, he was kind of a failed, uh, failed uh, policeman and failed government, <laughs> government actor. And I find it really interesting that, that, you know, he was more trustworthy as a private actor to the police than than an, than as an employee, <laughs> and then he was able to sell this this these technologies and this expertise to to the police. So maybe you want to say something about this fellow. <laughs> Happy to. The story here on Matthew McClary is fascinating. His father was a prominent law enforcement uh, figure. In fact, he was the warden of a prison, um, went on to have an international profile in lecturing about prison reform, um, very influential in these thought circles. The elder McClary introduced his son to Alphonse Bertillon, who was the French detective who created the Bertillon system of anthropometry. Matthew McClary trained in that system, brought it back to North America to try to, um, to try to diffuse it, to try to get um, uptake across the agencies. But he had a checkered past, so he bounced around from job to job, Matthew McClary did, um, got into trouble, was asked to leave, had a federal job at Leavenworth Prison in Kansas, kind of didn't work out, um, got in a bar fight with an ex-con, uh, lost his job due to that. You know, he's he's sort of um, always existing in the interstices. In and yet he did a few years in the Chicago Police Department. This becomes relevant um, because there 
was a style of policing up through the 19th, really up through the mid 20th century in which local beat cops were very proud of their knowledge of the residents within their, uh, within their geographic posting, right? So they were in fact resistant to anthropometry and to fingerprint observation or surveillance because they felt that it was part of their professional training to know by their own eye who was who. They didn't need a database or algorithms or fingerprints. They knew people's biographies. They knew the houses in which they lived, their family members, the schools they went to, uh, where they work. All of this was embedded in them. And it was a, a source of authority and expertise. So for that style of policing, having a federal surveillance apparatus uh, was a real threat. Um, it would have undermined their expertise as law enforcement officers. So Matthew McClary understood that precisely because he'd worked in so many institutions. He'd worked in prisons. He'd worked in a police department. He'd worked briefly for um, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He like he got it. He got these local um, needs, uh, interests. He understood what people's, uh, what the stakes were for, for the very, uh, we could say, you know, mixed or patchwork quilt of agencies that made up law enforcement and surveillance in the U.S. at that time. He was good at that. And he could really do the shop talk with any one of these from the lowest prison guard up to the highest officials in Washington, D.C. So he um, actually thrived outside of law enforcement, like within this world of the fact private fingerprint men. He gave lectures, he was giving trainings and certifications, and then he could sell those services effectively back to law enforcement. So I think that this is a really important questions for scholars to go on thinking about. Why was it that formal law enforcement, police departments weren't developing these technologies in-house? Why was it that this private sector kind of thrives grows up and does that work. And it's important for us to think about because it's in the private sector precisely where more, I would say, risky technologies um, are experimented with and sort of become tested and then like legitimated prior to coming into law enforcement. And remember, none of this is ratified or voted upon directly by the very subjects who are being surveyed and profiled as suspects. Indeed. Yeah, and it also reminded me that when you were discussing this kind of resistance to these technologies from the from the police on the ground, let's say, you know, we're having the same discussions today with AI and so forth and the role of the analyst and the, the turn to intelligence-led policing, the police on the streets, even in Norway, you know, they feel like no, we don't need these iPads, and they try to, you know, <laughs> to, you know, kind of resist this data-driven, uh, knowledge-based policing, right? So, so it's kind of fascinating that the same kind of feelings and sentiments just reappear and or just persist in a way, and and now the fingerprinting has been normalized, so it is the big data that is the threat, but it's always this kind of new technology that is robbing the policemen of the discretion and 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 so forth. So. So that's really that's really interesting, and uh, I think we should just briefly maybe return to the to the to the thing that you opened the article with, which is the Jennings case, and uh, and say a bit about it in the context also of this kind of racial dynamics because we haven't touched upon it as yet, uh, and uh, the kind of racial hoaxes that you that you describe and and the threat from the let's say the black other uh, that kind of uh, uh, let's say, <laughs> turn into a scientific object. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the paper opens with the murder of a man called Clarence Hiller. He was a white Chicago residence and he was shot to death in his home in um, the autumn of 1910. The man arrested and eventually convicted um and hanged for that crime was Thomas Jennings. And Thomas Jennings was um, a black resident of Chicago, a day laborer. And Jennings denied any involvement in the case. So Jennings was arrested by four off-duty police officers 
uh, several blocks from the home in which um, Clarence Hilly lived and where he died. And Jennings went to trial on the basis of fingerprints found on the porch outside the Hiller home. And this uh, Jennings-Hiller case is significant in the history of surveillance because it is when fingerprint evidence becomes admissible in a court of law. So fingerprints had been used for surveillance prior to that, um, most um, significantly in British India so that British officials could like monitor the movement of Indian uh, subjects. But here in the Jennings case, it was the first that it came into as formal court evidence in a criminal trial. So Jennings uh, defense lawyers mounted a spirited and vigorous defense of him. Uh, so did Chicago's black community. Uh, they pointed to the fact that Jennings had no history of violent crime. He did have a prior arrest record for property theft. Uh, Jennings himself said that it wasn't him, he didn't have a gun, nothing to do with it. Well, um, I write all of this because in my archival work, I came to mistrust the ultimate outcome of this. I think that there are too many discrepant pieces of evidence um, for it to have been a, a clear um, and convincing case against Jennings. And it's not that I doubt fingerprint evidence, it's that there's too much circumstantial evidence uh, pointing in a different direction. But Jennings was an easy target, and this goes right back to our earlier conversation about fingerprint narratives, the hysteria around uh, growing metropolitan areas and mixed populations, and specifically in Chicago with a growing black population. One of the outcomes of the great migration out of the Southern United States of black people was the growth of black neighborhoods in Northern cities and Chicago was one of them. This story hit all of the notes that white law enforcement officials and politicians and other community leaders relied on to justify their policing and their surveillance activities. And then also like their segregationist activities, like trying to keep black people from buying homes in white neighborhoods. So the Jennings-Hiller murder trial attracted national and eventually international attention for the question of whether a fingerprint could be sufficient evidence to convict a man. Um, that answer was in the end, yes, right? He was executed in 1912 for this crime. I wanted to open up a critical conversation about what else was happening behind the scenes there. And again, to use this phrase about um, the fingerprint being a subtle, a very supple cultural device because it was open to interpretation um, in a way that anthropometry wasn't. And it allowed for the fingerprint to be a semantic resource. So one of the resources that could be used to, excuse me, cast doubt on the trustworthiness of certain subjects and citizens. And I tie that in with some other dramatized whodunits around the same time, also involving black men, also involving fingerprints. And this man, Matthew McClary, was behind all of them. He's sort of, you know, the play director who's pulling the puppet strings on the phone to the reporters, trying to plant seeds of a story and finessing the details, which he was able to do because he had access to people and resources in these very different spaces. So he's trying to promote himself as a fingerprint man, in part by being the one who solves these cases of the um, criminalized black suspect through his fingerprint wizardry. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, this really is like, <laughs> it's so reminiscent of, of all this kind of industry in, 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 in the private sector, right? The, the, you find the same narratives again and again. And you also pick, you know, every time, I think that, you know, the, the, the threat reports, the national threat reports, the, the kind of examples that are there, like, like with the looting of antiquities, right? This becomes established as one of those things. Then you have another maybe 
money laundering to art, and you have a couple of iconic examples, and those are then recycled and built upon uh, across these private industries, sold as like the kind of key knowledge. And then, and then, of course, you have you have this expertise, but there's very often very little behind those iconic examples. I always find that you know, give me another example. Oh, there's none. <laughs> we have this is what we have, right? And and this kind of stimulates the growth of these te both these technologies, but also of regulation and of kind of demand for more and more. Uh, so so I find it really fascinating how how these arguments, the logic of how they are made. And how do you create these kind of narratives around these topics? It hasn't really changed much. Uh, and the market has just simply expanded in, in scope, I think. But yeah, what also emerges here is that surveillance becomes kind of a way of maintaining moral order throughout social life uh, in, in this kind of scenario. And, it, uh, and its narrative becomes effective, as you write, uh, and I quote, in its gesture towards a potentially endless landscape of social ills and combination of surveillance practices to combat them. And I think this is precisely this kind of logic is, is capable of expanding almost endlessly, it appears, and, and kind of find always new areas to, to suck into its, <laughs> into its hold and, uh, and spread into new social realms and so forth. Um, yeah, but one wonders in the end, has not this drive towards control through surveillance because it is really an attempt to control the world, um, both morally and, and, and in other ways, uh, undermine the really moral order that it kind of seeks to maintain, right? I mean, you, you in a way destroy the, <laughs> the, the moral order by, by trying to control it in, in this kind of excessive way, I sometimes feel. I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> I agree with that. And I love the way you put it. This uh, style of work, right, the cultures of surveillance, is firmly attuned to the ways in which surveillance devices and methods continually expand, reach into different realms of privacy, the private sphere, individual lives, and also have a way of exporting surveillance into domains that hadn't previously been surveyed or that we might thought were not subject to surveillance. And I do wonder as a scholar whether the, among the consequences of doing that is um, a compromised cultural life and like the richness of our relationships and understandings might be hemmed in and ever constricted through the outward expansion. Foucault wrote about capillary power, of course, as one way of understanding how the state's reach moves through ever finer channels until it, it is all but a trace, but it is still potent and still present. And when I wrote about fingerprints, I was also thinking about my work on looted artifacts and their movement into different spaces and how that has been concomitant with an expansion of state claims to policing. And it takes us right back to the art squad. And so we can think on the one hand about their legally justified claim to investigate, to uh, monitor the movements of objects and to insert themselves into institutions and relationships in order to monitor that. But then also it becomes like, impossible to reject that. If the moral claim is always, we are protecting our art, it's really hard to say what the limit of that ought to be. Uh, the same thing can be said of criminal investigations. Who is willing to stand up and say, here's the limit, right? Uh, and we see how this plays out, of course, in political debates right now in the lead up to our national election next week. Um, again, this becomes a renewed space for questioning what the appropriate limits of this kind of surveillance ought to be. Yeah, indeed. Well, this was, I think, uh, great. And uh, so the last thing that I just want to ask is what you're working on right now. Uh, and uh, if there's anything you would like to share or... <laughs> Restitution is the next big project for me. So this picks up on something that I write about at the end of my book, Ruling Culture. I wrap up that book by discussing the efforts of the Italian government to restore artworks that have been taken from it, but then also what it's done to restitute back to the countries from which it took artwork, principally while it was a colonial power. 
And I am planning to write a book on restitution and it picks up on some of that earlier work like post-World War II restitution, but then also travels into the current moment of restitution demands. And some of this restitution comes directly out of uh, art crime, um, but not all of it. And so some of it is also contending with processes of monument extraction going back hundreds of years under um, imperial and colonial occupation. So it's um, a project that I think brings um, into some new directions some of the theories I've been thinking about, about um, the ways in which objects shape our consciousness and our identity, and also how they extend out social relationships in ways that um, other non-cultural institutions don't. Brilliant. This sounds exciting. And I'm looking forward already to the, to the book. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Thank you for this great conversation. And uh, this was Fiona Greenland. And um, yes, and I can just say that uh, you will be talking uh, at our conference in uh, December 5th to 6th in Oslo for those in Oslo. So they can listen to you there as well. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I'm looking forward to that and always appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Teresa. Thanks very much. <laughs> thank you.